Welcome to the Boost Health Podcast, where we are searching for wellness balance. Your host is Paul Sandberg, a certified strength and conditioning specialist with nearly 20 years of experience in the health and fitness industry and degrees in human biology and business. At Boost Health, our passion is to learn and share new wellness tactics and help individuals create their own personal health strategy. Join us on this journey of being open-minded and trying new things. You can learn more at MyBoostHealth.com. Welcome to the show. Find your balance. 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 Find your balance. That is our goal here at Boost Health. Welcome to episode number 45 of the Boost Health podcast. Today's show features special guest, Maggie Downey. We talk a lot about pain. What if our traditional thoughts on how to deal with pain or even where it comes from are not accurate? I really enjoyed the show with Maggie and have already been applying some of the strategies we talk about to my daily life. A couple of quick announcements and then we'll jump right into the show. Boost Health TV. The Boost Health podcast is now available via video format on the Boost Health TV YouTube channel. Boost Health TV also includes several awesome workout videos, including a new one I just created that requires no equipment whatsoever. I'll link to the channel in the show notes and blog so you can check it out. And newsletter, if you haven't already signed up for the weekly Boost newsletter, you can do so by entering your name and email into the form on the homepage of myboosthealth.com. That way you don't miss any Boost Health news. All right, now here's episode 45 of the Boost Health podcast, where pain actually comes from and how we should treat it, featuring Maggie Downey. All right, my guest on the show today is Maggie Downey. Maggie is the founder of Personal Euphoria. It's a fitness and wellness company where she's been helping her clients reduce pain since 2005. She also co-founded Peeps in Motion, and it offers workshops for wellness, which are programs designed to keep people moving and reduce pain. Maggie lives in Connecticut, which for my international listeners, that's in the U.S., and she enjoys doing planks in different parts of the world. We were talking earlier. She's traveled to lots of really cool places. She's seeking adventures. She likes climbing mountains and, and eating chocolate. I like to eat my dark chocolate, too. Uh, She loves being in motion, but when she's not, you can find her researching the body to better understand how movement can help us live and feel better. I love that. And Maggie also just recently wrote a book. It's called Keep Moving, Take Steps to Relieve Pain and Improve Your Life. It was actually just published in late 2018, and right now it has perfect reviews on Amazon. And I read a little bit of it. It's actually really, really cool. Uh, So Maggie, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, I am too. I am too. I, I'm especially excited to to talk about pain. Uh, like most people, I you know go through <laughs> periods where I experience pain and try to work work through it and work around it. Um, so I'm always excited to learn new new tactics for that. So can you tell us just a little bit more about your your background and experience and and how you got to where you are uh, with wellness and and pain theory? Uh, Sure. Well, my background is actually, I went to college as a history major. So I have my degree in history. And when I came out of college, I taught high school and I worked at the Mark Twain House and Museum. So I was in like historical literature. 
and research. And I accidentally wound up in fitness, basically. I joined a gym. Once I got a job that I was sitting at a desk for a big part of the day, I was antsy and I was struggling to like figure out my, I had lost basically my whole workout routine that had always been a part of my life. And so I joined a gym and started taking a Pilates class and I loved it. And, um, eventually the instructor left and the gym said to me, if you'd like to take over this class, you'd have to get certified. And I was like, I'll totally do that. I love the class. It seems like fun. And I got certified. And about two years later, I left my job at the Mark Twain house to start personal euphoria. And it just continued to grow. And I work with a variety of clients. um, But I was really intrigued by my clients that came to me in pain or actually any other client, because eventually, like you said, we kind of all wind up in pain. We have to deal with it at some point in our life. Absolutely. Um, And those would be the things that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the standard Pilates exercise that would always work. So I would start doing research on what would work for this person. And then through uh, Stop Pilates, which is who I'm trained through, I took training in injuries and special populations. And I just became more and more fascinated with it and had like years and years of research. And as I worked through my own pain journey, I realized that I felt like I had some tools that were really helpful, that seemed obvious to me because of how much I knew about the body. And that if I could only get them out to people, it could really help people because there's pain is complicated. And I wouldn't want to sound condescending or make it seem like if you do these five things, you'll be pain free. It isn't always that easy. But there certainly are simple changes that people can start to make to help relieve and reduce pain. And then there are paths you can take when you need more serious work, but there's like always options. Uh, So that's what kind of got me to the book over time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're out there in the field and you're getting experience, you know, as a Pilates instructor or personal trainer or whatever, you, you start to find your own personal niche, I think as, uh, as an instructor and, you know, you find cues that you like. And it sounds like you found out that you're pretty good at helping people have good body awareness. I think that's one of the great things about Pilates is, is body awareness. And it sounds like, you know, through instruction with that, you're able to help people understand more about their body and, and how to eliminate pain. Right. I mean, that must've been what partially inspired you to, to write this. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely a piece of it, right? Like I love movement, so I definitely find all thing, all types of movement rewarding. But mm-hmm. when a client comes to you and they don't want to have back surgery, and they are out of, they haven't had back surgery now for like five years because they've been consistently coming. And I don't feel like I take credit for that. I I think I help in the process, but they have to show up and do the work. Right. But I do feel like if we move more, if we use other tools, massage, um chiropractic work. There's lots of options. And if we find the right things for us, we can ward off surgery or delay it and heal faster from necessary surgeries um, and just move better and enjoy the life we have. So when you're helping someone get to like, enjoy life better, it's like, my job's great. Right. Right, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I think that's great too. I mean, oh gosh, man, pain is so interesting too. Like just the back, just, uh, you know, I really like your protocol about keeping people moving. Like 
we've seen in study after study, just even looking at back pain, it's much better to keep somebody doing basic movements instead of just laying there in their bed. They're going to heal much faster if they, you know, work a, a protocol, a safe protocol, but a protocol where they're moving instead of just, just lying there and waiting for their body to heal. And, you know, you see studies where there's people that have like slip discs on an x-ray and they're living with absolutely no pain at all. They feel fine. And then there's somebody, you know, clinically looking at their their information and their x-rays and they have absolutely nothing wrong from what you can see, but they're in incredible pain. So I think there's a lot, we're going to talk about this more a lot later, but I think a lot of it can be mental b- breakthroughs and barriers too. Well, it's absolutely true because in fact, some of the research shows that when you just tell people the fact that you just pointed out, right, that you can have a terrible looking x-ray and no pain, or you can have an x-ray that looks fantastic and be in a lot of pain. When you make people aware of that, it helps them get out of pain. Yes. Just knowing that what you see on the x-ray is not necessarily fact or directly linked to the pain is helpful. And one of the interesting things to me about back pain is that we have these deep stabilizer muscles and every time we move, they're meant to engage without us thinking about it. So the Kegel or pelvic floor that people are probably familiar is one of them. The transverse abdominis, which is the deepest ab muscle is one. And then you have a bunch of muscles called your multifidi running through your spine. They are all meant to engage before every movement, when you sneeze, when you twist, when you pick up a piece of paper. And they know when people have low back pain that this stops happening for some reason. Oh, interesting. when you need your stabilizing muscles the most because you need that support, they've kind of left you, but you can kind of train yourself to actively engage at least the TA and the pelvic floor to help stabilize before movement. And that's like one of the things that it's like, if people have back pain and they don't know that they're missing a great opportunity to help support their own spine. Oh, that's a really good point. And that's interesting. And then again, that just shows you, it's exciting that there's more and more interesting research coming out now about how there's protocols beyond just the go do your PT for two weeks and get get kicked out and then sort of hope to try to figure it out on your own. There's so many different tools that we have access to now. And, And more of us that are sort of on the other side of the physical therapy, we're starting to figure out ways to sort of bridge that gap because it is a gap, at least in, you know, Western medicine, you're not going to heal too many people in two weeks, but that's what a lot of people's, uh, coverage covers. And so we have to figure out a way to get people back to hundred percent without having to keep dumping them through the system. Well, I also think like I'm a major advocate for physical therapy. I think people should go more often. They should send us before we're injured so we can like be prepared for injury of the future. Right. Pre- prehab. But, prehab. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think one of the problems with some of the ways it's structured is, you know, the first time you meet with your physical therapist, but then a lot of times they're seeing multiple people at once and you're kind of on your own. Hmm. And that structure can work for certain injuries and certain people and they might get results, but other people, they need very specific cueing and subtle adjustments to make sure they're feeling it in the right spot. And that means a lot more of one-on-one contact. And I think a lot of PTs would love that option. It's just not the way it's structured, you know, and that that's a piece of the problem. Yeah, that's a good point. And I I remember when I was rehabbing a hamstring injury, I had a really, really good physical therapist, but you know, they're seeing, I mean, just in the hour that I was there, I think five or six different people. 
Um, it's yeah, it's just just crazy. It's it's too much. And I yes. had good body awareness. I would hate to see what would happen to somebody like to your point if they really need extra cueing and and a, an extra personal touch that, that they're probably not getting it. No, I completely agree. I've had the same thing. Ex, I've worked with an excellent physical therapist. Same thing. They had to see multiple people, and I had the exact same thought. Like, I'm lucky I know my body, and it, it's not the therapist's fault. Like, no, it's, no, it's you not. know. Well, I want to hear uh, the process of of writing your book. I think I heard in another interview with you that you started the process about three years ago. But I'd like to know sort of what what made you feel uh, like you needed to write this. Usually, people are inspired by by something or multiple things to to write a book. and And who should read this? Um, all right. So, well, I love writing. I've always enjoyed writing for as long as I can remember. I've written a blog for probably like ten years now. Um, And like I said, I had been doing this research and kind of just accumulating information. And I think the real inspiration when I said, I'm going to take all this research and start writing came from like two occasions in the same week where a client came up to me after a class and was like, you know, my back is hurting. And I was like, you know, when you're standing, play with where your hips align over your, over your ankles, right? Like just notice if your hips are jutting forward and try to shift them back. And she came back the next week and she was like, wow, I've been doing that. It feels so much better. And it is not always that easy, right? Sometimes it takes more work than that. But when I had like two of those back to back, I was like, man, I just can't say it enough to people. And there are some thoughts that if I can get it out on a YouTube video, if I can get it out in my classes, if I can get it out through a book, every way to reach people um, is worth trying. Um, So who should read my book? Uh, I want to say everyone, because I ideally, like, if you read it before you were in pain, you'd have tools to post. We're all going to, we're all going to wind up in pain. We're never going to stop that. And it's not even a always negative thing, right? It can be helpful, but you could have the skills to help you get out of it faster, to prevent it in a lot of issues and scenarios in life. But I'm well aware that is unrealistic, even in my own body. When I know I have an old injury, I should still be working on. Once that pain's gone, mm-hmm. you're not motivated to solve it. Yes, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I think realistically, people who are in chronic pain, they've had something nagging at them or bothering them for a long time, or a loved one of someone in chronic pain needs to read this book because... While there's one chapter that actually gives you exercises and tools, and hopefully there'll be some in there that help any specific individual, it also gives you the most recent research on pain theory and a little bit background on how it works. Because we know if people understand that, they have more success with all the exercises and coming out of pain. And then it's also very much a story. I didn't want this to be a textbook. I didn't want it to seem like just an exercise manual. So I tell stories of my experience with pain, my experience with movement, my friends, my clients, and I try to make it very conversational. So my hope and the feedback I've gotten is that it reads like you're talking to me and we're friends having a a conversation. Uh, Because I know not everyone is as interested in movement and the body as I am. So it's like all the most interesting pieces in a story. (laughs) That's great. And I, and I think I, um, remember hearing you say that you worked with a, an artist on, on making like the, the graphics in the book, like fun and interesting and, and making it easier for people to learn some of the different components. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
I reached out to a friend of mine from high school who's a cartoonist. His name is Ethan Harper. And I asked if he would draw cartoons for the book because I really did. I wanted it to be lighthearted, fun. I wanted it to like sometimes make people laugh or be a little silly um, because all of those things also help with pain. Um, you know, laughter, enjoying things, looking forward to something. Um, so he drew the pictures for some of the exercises. I took pictures of my clients and he cartoonified them. So that brings me a lot of joy to flip through the book and see cartoons of people I actually work with Oh, fun! and, and know that they're a part of it. That makes me really happy. That's, that's neat. And I think that's the right answer. I mean, I think, uh, about who should read it. I really think that it'll apply to, to everybody and give everybody tools. And I always say, take 2% from everybody. There's going to be things in there that people are going to be able to apply to their lives right away. And, and whether it's something that they're going to use on an old chronic injury or something they can use to help prehab, as we were talking about, I think it would be really excellent for people to check out. So I want to talk. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I want to talk a little bit about, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you know, what we're seeing in Western medicine, you know, people getting dr driven through physical therapy, therapy a little bit too quickly, but also like our opiate addiction in the U S um, and whether or not we're really treating pain the proper way. I, I want to hear your take on, you know, what are we doing wrong with painkillers and rest and icing and movement and, and what's a better way to potentially attack it than we are currently in the West? I think we have to educate people and change mindsets because understandably, especially like in our very fast paced lives, we want the most easy and immediate way out of pain. And so a pill seems very promising. Mm -hmm. And that leads to an opioid crisis and addiction. And I know Connecticut in particular has a very high opioid problem. So the state I'm from really is challenged by that. And the, the problem is that on one level, they know that well, opioids can dull pain. And so it can be relief, but it can also increase pain, making you need more and more opioids because mm -hmm. the body knows it's in pain. It wants to signal, signal you that. And when you try to block it, it goes, Oh, she's not getting the signal. I need to send more. I need yeah, to send more, more and, and louder. More <laughs> right. And so they do know that for many people, opioids actually increase pain. Uh, unbelievable. Um, similarly, and, and again, I, it's not that I'm totally blanket statement anti anything because a pill can be great when it's used right. An orthotic can be great. People put in orthotics often and they are immediately taken out of pain. Anything that can get rid of pain is promising and helpful, but neither of those things actually fix the root cause. They're both a band aid or masking the problem. Mm -hmm. So if you take that orthotic out or if you then get rid of that opioid, you still have the pain that you started with. And until we take the time to solve that, we're not going to get out of pain. But that has to come from doctors educating and encouraging people that way and for people being willing to take more time to solve their problem. What you just said about the orthotics made me think of uh, of uh, excerpt from Kelly, Kelly Sturette's book, K-Star. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book called Ready to Run. Um, and he's got this picture of a woman who has been in orthotics for God knows how many years. And there's a picture from behind. So it's the back of her leg, the back of her foot. 
And so you can sort of see her tendo calcanus is basically almost like at a 90 degree bend. It's really scary looking. And of course her, her arches are completely caved in and flat. And so what her doctor had done with her is said, okay, bye-bye orthotics. We're going to slowly transition you out of those and get you in, you know, just a basic flat to the ground foot with, you know, the yucky stabilizer stuff that they throw in shoes nowadays. So just a basic sort of flat to the ground skate shoe and slowly moved her out of the orthotics completely. And I think it was a year or two later, I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. She actually had restored arches and the back uh, of her foot that, that tendo calcanus was almost completely straight up and down. It was amazing. And, and to your point, yes, maybe immediately using that orthotic to remove pain was the answer, but the doctor should have been saying, this isn't forever. This isn't for life. This is just to temporarily get you out of pain, but let's slowly transition you into something that's actually going to give you something because let's make the foot work like a foot, right? <laughs> not, not with the bandaid to your point of, of for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, I once had a sports medicine doctor say to me that we accept orthotics as a way of life. If anyone ever said, oh, you need this neck brace and you're never going to get out of it. We would never accept that. In part out <laughs> I of like that. Right? That's a good point. Yes. It's a yes. great point. And it is the same thing. It's a brace. It's there to support you. But if you don't have sound feet, it's going to trickle up and mm. eventually your knees are going to hurt. And so you need to like actually do the stability. We don't just like you know, we want six pack abs. We never think about exercising our feet and what they need to enable us to have six pack abs, you know? Right. Yeah. Joe Pilates, uh, the elders, some of the elders who, who are people who trained under Joe Pilates and were teaching into their eighties and nineties, they used to say that if someone went to Joe Pilates with back pain, he might spend 30 minutes on your feet because if you didn't get your feet right, you, he felt you couldn't get anything right. Oh, that's so smart. And and it's, I mean, he obviously knew the kinetic chain well, you know, you start yeah. from the ground up, you do the same thing with ergonomic evaluations. I know I've gone and done a few of these and somebody will have like, you know, the sit stand workstation, which is all the craze. And it's good to change positions as you should through the workday. And I'll have a, a female, she'll have like perfect, you know, good, you know, sort of brace neutral spine and she'll have a 90 degree arm bend and she'll have her monitor. So she's just, you know, at a 45 degree tilt. So she's not overextending or underextending and, and everything looks good all the way down. And then you look at the floor and what's she wearing? High heels. High heels. Nothing <laughs> from there up is going to be right because it changes your axis. And so it's all wrong. And so getting them to at least have a pair of flats at their desk. And then of course, as soon as you change into flats, well, then everything else has to be adjusted her you know, the height of her monitor, the height of, and this, I shouldn't say her, 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 because guys wear high heels to, to offices too. There's, you know, half inch, quarter inch high heel on most gentlemen's uh, dress shoes too. They're starting to finally, finally make really nice looking flat to the ground dress shoes for men. I just got a pair. They're really cool. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's a great point that you make about it, the kinetic chain and things starting from the ground up. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. If we want to be healthy, we have to think of the whole, right? Is that how you feel about ice? Because um, I want to talk about, I don't know if you've heard of the book, uh, Iced, uh, The Illusionary Treatment Option by Gary Raynall. I actually met him at a strength and conditioning conference once. Um, I mean, you know, rice is like the big thing to do um, if you get injured. The first thing, yeah, throw some ice on it, elevate it, you know, compression. Um, but his take on it is no, we really just need movement. Do you feel like there's a place for it still in injury 
rehab or should we just get rid of it altogether? I feel like there's a place for it still, but I don't know if that is me just struggling to let go of old ideas. Like, like, like <laughs> what? how can ice not, you know, right. because yes, for most of my life, rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation was the standard. Mm. And we know now, not that some rest isn't good, but you want to get moving as soon as possible. And right. Like ice reduces inflammation, but the body, but inflammation is partly what heals us. It's good. It's yes. partly what reminds us not to, to repeat the injury, right? Yes. If we take the inflammation away, then we're, we're not necessarily healed and we might. Can, so I actually, my book came out on October 23rd and then on Halloween, I tripped off a step and sprained my foot Oh no! <laughs> and it was agonizing. And my boyfriend was teasing me. He was like, didn't you just write a book about pain and how to keep moving? And it was a beautiful day. I was wearing flip flops and he said, didn't you say how bad flip flops right? were? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I've done everything wrong. And my first thought was I've got to get ice on this or it'll be a disaster. And I used ice. I used constant movement. I used massage. Um, but that was October 31st. And I haven't given it the amount of attention it needed because it hurt for really badly for 24 hours. It hurt kind of bad for like a week and a half. And then it was like, oh, I can work around this. I could work around this. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, gosh, this is what I tell people all the time. I need to spend more time with it. And so it was this week, actually, that I was like, this is it. I can't have scar tissue build up. I have to move it more. I have to take time to exercise it or I will suffer later for this. So that's interesting. So, and I a hundred percent agree that, uh, yes, just mobilizing it more, maybe just rethinking our thoughts about throwing some ice on it and, and putting it up in the air and compressing it and resting it. Because, you know, one of Gary's points is that we've, it's almost like a, um, uh, what you would do with an opiate in a certain point, obviously not to that level, but you're numbing the sensation of pain when you, mm -hmm. when you use ice. And is that really what we should be doing? We, we do need at, to your point, we do need that inflammation to help with recovery and also to tell us to, to not go do wind sprints on a hurt ankle. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting thing to think about, right? Like maybe, maybe we weren't necessarily doing this the right way. Maybe we rest it for a little bit, but we still keep it moving at a safe level. And maybe the ice just doesn't even have a, a place there. Well, so I think that's the thing, right? Like rest doesn't have to mean complete mobility. Like in my case with a sprained foot, could I wiggle my toes, but maybe I wasn't going for a run for a week, you know? Oh yeah. I like can that. I do, can I do small movements? Can I move my ankle without pain? If not my ankle, could I rub my calf? Like mm. what can I do to mobilize? And in the ice question, again, like I'm conflicted. Honestly, one of the things that I did think helped me is I would alternate between ice and heat. Like I would do put my foot in ice water and then hot water and then ice water and then hot water. And because someone has suggested that to me saying like, it'll, it, it like makes your blood vessels open and close and open and close. And it kind of creates like a pump to push the blood in, which is kind of what inflammation is trying to do anyway. So I found that an intriguing little experiment in my own body. That's not a science experiment, but I found that helpful. No, I love N equals and, one experiments are the best. They're great. Right. And I guess that's the thing. I think it's not one size fits all. The fact that 
ice might not be the answer means if ice has never worked for you, there might be hope for something else. Mm -hmm. But if ice has always worked for you, whether it works or it's a placebo, keep icing. (laughs) Well, you know, that's, I think this is a perfect transition to, to, to pain theory because yeah, that the icing and the, and the heat may not have actually been doing something specifically. Like if you went in and measured some, you know, inflammation or whatever, but (laughs) if it's helping, who cares? Who cares if it's placebo? Who cares if it's telling your body that it feels better and then it feels better? Who, Who cares? Right. As long as it's feeling better. I agree. Okay. So I've been so excited for the last week to talk to you about this. Um, (laughs) <laughs> there's some really cool stuff coming out about healing our body with our brains. Um, and I saw you talk about the pain loop is actually in the first chapter of your book. So I know you're aware of this and you talk about a really cool experiment, the rubber hand experiment. Can you talk a little bit about this? I think it's a good sort of introduction to talking about our, our brain and how we uh, trigger pain and understand pain in our body. Sure. Well, So the rubber hand experiment was a study done in 2006 by a man named Henrik Ersson, if I'm pronouncing that right. And he's a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm a little obsessed with neuroscientists, honestly. Um, But so basically what the experiment was is to kind of show how we understand what is our what what part of our body is ours and sort of body ownership. So the fact that like when I shake your hand, I can tell that you don't suddenly become a part of me, I stop and you start. Or the fact that I know when I put a shoe on, that doesn't become part of me, my foot is something separate. So what is, what part? What parts are me and belong to me? And how do we feel and sense that? So the rubber hand experiment is basically that you would put one of your hands on a table and next to it where your other hand would go, you would put a fake rubber hand. And you would put your real hand beneath the table where you can't see it. And then you would have a friend tickle the rubber hand and your hand beneath the table simultaneously for 12 seconds. And then they smash the rubber hand with a mallet. And when they do that, people instinctively pull their own hand away. That's totally safe underneath the table, even though they could tell you, I am aware that's a rubber hand. I know that's not my hand. I know I can't get injured, but they still on instinct pull their hand away. That's, that's so cool. I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's just a little picture into this, this, the way uh, our brain, I heard it re- explained really well. So, so Joe Todd actually wrote an interesting article on mind, body green about our brain and how, how brain is uh, the inputs and outputs of pain and, and how we could potentially rewire it. So he was saying that pain is actually an output from our brain versus an input from our body. And it's the brain's decision on whether or not it's going to sort of allow pain to occur. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So, and there's other things that get involved with it too, like your own personal beliefs, your lifestyle, even emotions uh, can be involved. And so the way I think of it, and it might be wrong or oversimplified, but like uh, a couple of days ago, I was doing some deadlifts and uh, I felt like just a little bit of a tweak and my lower back. And so I just said, you know what? I know I'm doing this exercise correctly. Um, I'm feeling fine. Everything's good. I'm actually, I'm going to ask you to stop telling me uh, that you're in pain lower back. So just shut up. (laughs) I'm going to keep going. And it stopped. 
placebo, whatever, or whether I was sort of tapping into this um, input output and, and shutting down that, uh, I think I effectively did it. So that's sort of an acute example. But uh, Mr. Tata was talking about how this can be a little different with chronic pain. So he said, you can get these clusters or groups of brain cells called neurotags, and they work to, together to create these outputs to tell your brain um, <laughs> that you're in pain. And then they are sort of bundled in with, again, influences, your own personal beliefs, your own emotions. So it's like, man, every time I go do those deadlifts, my lower back's going to hurt. Well, you can see how if you're going into that, you've already got that sort of cluster working against you. So if you start the thing saying, you know what, the, the deadlifts today, it's going to feel great. My lower back's going to be fine. If it tells me that it's in pain, I'm just going to tell it to shut up. And so it's sort of this, at least I had thought about it in the past as sort of a loop. And it's almost more like, maybe it's a loop, but it's almost like a hose that you can put a kink in uh, with the power of your brain. I don't know. I want, I want to hear your take on that though. So I think it might depend on what's going on and it might be very individual for different people. So because yes, like I think there's truth to that. And actually there are, so they have found it's, it's not that common. It's most, it's more common in teenage girls, but I think it's called amplified skeletal pain syndrome. The skeletal might, I might be having the wrong word there, but basically they can find nothing wrong with these young adults and they're an incredible pain, sometimes wheelchair bound. And there are uh, eight clinics in the United States that are working on helping these people get out of pain. And it's really intensive, intensive programs. Like it's almost like going to rehab. You're going to go and you're going to move in there and you do occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, regular therapy for your mind. You do aerobic exercise. And I think part of what they work on is moving and saying this, you have to tell yourself this doesn't hurt right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to retrain yourself that these movements do not hurt. And so I think depending on what is happening, like if your pain is debilitating and no one can find anything wrong with you, that is certainly a path to take. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, where I get worried is I feel like very often, especially athletes turn off their pain signal, which is meant to say, uh, you shouldn't still be doing this anymore and wind up actually injured because they didn't listen right. to the pain. So I think we have to learn when we're getting which signal, right? Like, okay, is this pain signal really real or is it in my head? Or is this pain signal one I can stop or telling me to stop? And that is really hard to learn as someone who studies the body and knows myself very well and thinks about movement and how I feel all the time that's challenging for me, it's going to be even more challenging for someone who doesn't think about their body all the time. And now we ask them to be like, is the pain in your brain or is the pain in your body? And the, the truth is, well, how we get out of it might matter. It doesn't matter. If you're feeling this pain in the brain, the one you can stop with the hose kink, right? You are still in pain because your brain is your perception of the whole world, right? right? So I always want to say that because I feel like if if you say to someone, oh, it's in your head, they kind of shut down, yes, right? So yes. it's, it, it has to be careful how we word that and, and explain it much like you did, right? That like, it's in your brain, but it's real. But here's the, let's play with different tools 
to help you discover that you can stop that. And I know there was um, a World War I anesthesiologist. His name was Colonel Henry Beecher. And he went to Europe and he was looking at like 200 soldiers and about 75% of them denied morphine. And he said, he thought to himself, like, if I were at home, people would be begging me for morphine with these injuries. Why are these soldiers not wanting it? And he concluded, although there could be other reasons, like part of me wondered is like, is it just a soldier? Like, are they tough? You know, are they trying to not let their friends see them in pain? But he concluded that the soldiers didn't need the medication because they realized their life was about to get better. They were leaving the war. They were going to come home potentially with military honors, whereas civilians with similar injuries, their life just got catastrophically worse. Oh, interesting. So our perspective can determine how our pain feels. That's a good point, Maggie. And I, I, I think that's a it's a. a a perfect time to bring it up too, as we start to introduce this as a, as a sort of a hack, I guess, if you will, there's, I guess just to sort of eliminate some of the gray area, there's a difference between acute pain and chronic pain. So I get my arm chopped off. Yeah. I probably should listen to that. <laughs> That's acute pain <laughs> or, you know, you tear an ACL or something like that. Um, versus something chronic, like, you know, my hamstring injury comes to mind where I, you know, it, it resurfaces every once in a while it's probably something I'm doing wrong biomechanically. And so I'm doing a whole bunch of different things um, to fix it. But I really just probably since, again, I know my body pretty well, I, I know I can perform with it. And I've done a lot of the proper protocols, including going to physical therapy to check on it. I feel like that's something I can tell just to shut up. I think that's a really good point to make. And actually, in referencing that, I think when we have acute pain, the like I, I just got whiplash in a car accident, we try to brush it off. We maybe don't get help and physical therapy right away. And the sooner you get help, the less likely that is going to become chronic pain because of that pain loop, right? When the brain gets used to telling you this hurts, this hurts, this hurts, it starts to convince itself that this is my normal. It hurts, this hurts, this hurts. Yes. Um, and the sooner you can break that cycle, the better. Yeah. Cause it gets sort of hypersensitive, right? I think that's what Dr. Todd was talking about with those neuro tags, like, yes, you're getting that pain loop happening over and over again. You're not doing the right things to make it better. And then you might have other things tied into that too, like emotions and beliefs on, oh, I, we, whenever I get hurt, I don't recover fully, you know, or you have people telling you, yep, we always get back injuries. And so that's just kind of the way it is for us. So you have to fight through not just the body telling you that you're in pain, but also maybe other things that are constantly feeding that, that so-called neuro tag. Absolutely. Those thoughts just aren't helpful, right? No. Like, like even if we're completely wrong on the mind being able to help you get out of pain, like y you are more likely to stay in pain if you think there's no hope and no option because you're not going to try anything, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I heard a story kind of similar to your story about the World War I soldiers where a guy had, um, he was jumping off of a, a tank. I think it was another soldier story. And he, he, fell and landed funny and he compound fractured his femur, which of course is not fun um, and excruciatingly painful. Um, but he was also ha had some awareness on neuroscience and had heard that if you can just be still, 
that your body will understand that it's safe and it does and it won't need to tell you that it's in, and I mean bro- broken compound fractured femur is a 10 out of 10 <clears throat> with pain obviously but he tried it and he sat there still and his body calmed down and it quit telling him that the pain was there now if he tried to move his leg of course that would be excruciatingly painful but I just thought that was interesting that if the body doesn't feel like it's in danger even though the pain is there it doesn't feel like it has to keep telling you uh, th- th- that it's in pain. It's almost like, um, and you probably know about this with, with Pilates, like lateral breathing or intra-abdominal pressure, 360 mm-hmm. degree breathing, your brain communicates down through the body, through the joints. And it, it, my friend Anna Woods, who was on the show a few months ago was talking about how, you know, when you're doing a squat or a deadlift or a lunge or anything, if you can maintain that core stability whilst you're doing the exercise, your brain's going to feel more stable and it may not feel like it needs to tell you that there's pain or, or instability there. Yeah, I think that's true, right? Like for anything we do, we need our core stability. But part of that goes back to, again, those muscles that engage on that exhale are meant to support us. Mm. So if we learn to engage them, we we do really have more support. So we're less likely to wind up in pain. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean we still can't do something wrong. We get distracted for a second, but we're more likely to do safe movement when we're activating our stabilizer muscles. Like yeah, that. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, before we move on, I want to quickly say we're talking about a lot of different research and studies. We're going to put the links to everything in the show notes and blogs so people can dig deeper if they're excited about th- this like you and I are. Um, another one I found really interesting too, sort of on the same thought, is uh, there's an interesting article is in Scientific American. And it's about using virtual reality technology to help burn victims through intense treatment. Now, if you've ever read or seen any um, burn victims going through treatment, it's really, it's scary and it's sad and it's obviously incredibly painful. Um, So they've been playing around with this treatment where they put um, burn victims into a virtual reality game called Snow World. Uh, And they apparently get so immersed in this game Um, that they don't have as hard of a time with treatment. So the study actually showed evidence of the Snow World game reducing their pain by an extra 15 to up to 40% on top of whatever relief they're getting from drugs. So again, it just sort of helps us understand maybe not using drugs or not using as many drugs to relieve pain and doing some of these, you know, interesting sort of brain hacks, if you will, to to help people get through uh, painful situations might be an interesting way to go in the future. You know, I, I love that the technology can do that. I think it's also right. Like when we're having fun, we're in less pain. When we have something to look forward to, we have less pain. Um, when we're distracted, we have, this is nothing new. I know any good gynecologist talks to you through your whole appointment, right? Like (laughs) any good doctor who's giving you a shot talks to you when they draw your blood, the phlebotomist talks to you, right? If they don't, you're like, hubbada, 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 hubbada. All I can focus on is the fact that you've got a needle inside me, right? So distract, and and you can find ways to distract yourself, right? You don't necessarily need your doctor to do it, but, but that is, again, one of the creative ways to help with pain. Make sure there's things on your calendar that you're looking forward to, that are gonna bring you joy, that are gonna pull you out of your own body. And there might be times where pain is so intense that that doesn't seem realistic, but 
within all of us, our pain fluctuates up and down. So, so put the things on the calendar, find ways to make life enjoyable because you're going to, if you do that, you'll also be more motivated to get out of pain and do the exercises that you need to, so that you can keep enjoying life. If, because pain can cause a lot of depression and that makes it harder to get up and move and get out of bed and do all, all the things you need to do. So start with whatever it is that's going to help you stay motivated, right? Yeah, that's a good point. And it sort of speaks to, I don't know, I mean, especially like in Connecticut in the wintertime, it's probably a little bit tougher, but I think we're, we're sort of seeing people do their exercise in the gym, but they don't go out and express their fitness outside with something that they enjoy. I really like that point that you made about putting something on the calendar. For some people, it's a race. Uh, for some people, you know, it's a fun walk or, you know, maybe it's even just being able to, you know, more effectively play with your kids at the playground. Like, I think that's a good point. Like give yourself a goal, um, to get outside and express that great fitness that you're doing in your Pilates class or that you're doing in, you know, your, uh, boot camp class or whatever, like get outside and, and express yourself in a fun way and, and enjoy the fitness that you're building for yourself. And, and then you can really see if you're in the three-dimensional world, as I always say, are you able to to operate as a human athlete? Well, and that matters too, actually, because when people exercise outside in what they call green space, they tend to exercise longer, say it hurts less, that they enjoyed the experience more. And if they're near blue space, meaning they can see water, it increases both the enjoyment, the length, all of that. Um, I think you know, we think of a gym and we feel like, and I enjoy working out at a gym. It's not, it's not bad. This isn't a criticism, but I think a lot of people feel like, you know, a hamster in the ball, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there are other options and definitely outdoor workouts. Plus you get fresh air, right? You see the trees, the trees release energy that make us feel good, right? Like they know that now, like going for a hike in the woods, actually we get chemicals from the trees that boost us up. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's uh, forest bathing, I think is what they call it. Yes, yeah. I've seen enough, uh, like, a, I think on NPR, I saw a talk on that or something. It's really yeah. cool. It's really cool. Yeah. And again, you know, who the heck cares if it's all placebo? <laughs> if it feels good to go out and exercise outside by the ocean and in the trees, just just go do it. It's It's great that it makes you feel good. It doesn't matter. Well, hating on the placebo effect has always shocked me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because it's, it's not like nothing happens. You're, you release chemicals that make you feel good. Something has changed. Yes. So even when you take a placebo, if it works for you, you've had an actual chemical hormonal change in your body. That's why it worked, you know? Yeah. That's you know, just to, to close the loop, pun intended on the pain loop. I think <laughs> that, that that's maybe a key takeaway. Like let's make it a little bit easier for people to sort of define what type of pain, but there's, it's still going to be somewhat nebulous. I understand that, but is it acute pain or is it chronic? Is it something that you've struggled with for a long time? Is it something that you've reinforced with your own statements or statements from your culture or your family or whatever? And if it, if it is on that sort of side of maybe it's chronic, maybe you're doing this to yourself or it's things that you're hearing over and over, maybe just try as a little hack just saying, you know what, I'm I'm going to try not paying attention to that right now. I'm going to tell myself I feel good. I've actually been playing around with this too a little bit, Maggie, with with anxiety, almost kind of the same type of thing, like creating new neural pathways. So I, I'm a little bit scared of heights. I'm actually quite scared of heights, but I just went on the ski trip with my family in Seoul and uh, 
My kids know that I'm scared of heights because I won't go on like the Ferris wheel with them and stuff. It's pretty bad. It's pretty lame. But I'm with um, you. I won't go on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> I'm not in control. I think part of it is is control. But anyway, I'm I'm creating a new pathway. So as we were going up the chairlift, which is very scary for me. Typically, I was saying to my kids, you know what? I enjoy this now. I am quite enjoying this chairlift. It's a fun little ride. I like the views up here. And it was kind of funny because like, no, you're not, dad, you're scared of heights. So I, I would recommend if you're going to try to create new neural pathways that you do it without that uh, negative feedback straight away. But it actually worked a little bit. I felt a little bit better. As I said, as I was doing deadlifts the other day, I was just telling my body to, to chill out. I'm actually feeling fine. That seemed to work a little bit. So well, again, whether it's placebo or not, just try these little hacks in, in, in sort of those more chronic injuries and pain areas and, and see if it helps you. W- would you say that's a fair strategy? I think it's a fair strategy, right? I think I am not a physical therapist. So I personally, like if a client is having pain, I don't push like on a scale pain scale beyond three, but I definitely Mm. think if you're in chronic pain and nothing is working, right? It's time to start some self-talk because again, it won't hurt you. And we do have to realize when we're in different situations or we change our perspective, it absolutely changes how we feel. So when they put people's arms in ice water and it's painful, they can withstand the pain more if they smile or if they swear. Either Ah, one works, Yes. right? So perspective, how we're thinking, distraction. Similarly to you, I am petrified of heights. And I had uh, this fall, I had gone on a hike in the White Mountains and I overestimated what I thought I could do because I had looked at the distance, but not the elevation increase and decrease. And it was multiple peaks. And so with about five miles to go, the sun was starting to set and it started raining and it was freezing. And I was going to have to go down this sheer cliff. And I was like, this, this is how I'm going to die. I'm the dumbest (laughs) person ever. I always say, turn back. You want to hike again, hike another day. Don't do this to yourself. And I absolutely hate ski lifts and cable cars. And at the last peak before I had to descend, there was a cable car that was going to run for 15 more minutes. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I wasn't terrified. I was like, this is going to save my life. I don't have to hike down this cliff in the rain. Put me on the cable car. I love it. And I sat on that on the way down and I was like, on any other day, I'd be terrified of this. And I'm not, I'm not even a little scared. Oh, that's cool. That is so interesting. That yeah. is, yeah, I think that perspective, whether it's something that you're forced into like that situation or that you sort of uh, generate yourself. I think that uh, another good example, I've told this story a few times on the show, but um, Chris Hoy, he's a gold medal cyclist from the UK, Olympic cyclist. Um, he would use sort of a mental tactic or trick, but it's the same thing we're talking about. It's all about sort of tricking your mind. He would have a little bit of anxiety before races. <clears throat> So he had a tactic, it's called anchoring. So anchoring is where you think of a positive thought. So for him, it was usually like, oh, a successful race. Like this is where I podiumed or I was really fast when I, uh, on this particular race. And he would sort of get his mind in that and he would attach it to some sort of gesture. Any, anything you like for him, it was grabbing his left earlobe. And so I always joke with my friends that I cycle with, if you see me grabbing my left earlobe, it's because I'm you know, trying to get through a moment of anxiety with my heart being too high or being too hot or whatever. But I think everything we're talking about is, is basically that, is, is using your body as a, as a, 
or brain, I should say, as a powerful tool to help you sort of hack through maybe anxiety or injury or something like that. You use your brain as a tool when appropriate, not when your arm's cut off, not when it's an acute injury, but don't ignore the power of, of the brain and, and the amazing research that's coming out out there about how we can use it. Yes. I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely true, right? Like our mind is our entire perspective, right? Like that, that's the reality we're going to be in. Um, and again, if your brain is telling you you're in pain in that moment, you're in pain. So can you change what your brain is telling you? Mm-hmm. And I think we were careful to say, should we change what our brain is telling us in, in the different scenarios where where we probably should and should not? Right. I do clear. think that's important. I definitely, because again, I don't feel like you fix pain with pain. Because one of the things we're saying is not just like charge through, but tell your try to tell yourself this doesn't hurt and relearn that. If you've been to doctors and you know that there's not an actual injury that's going to get worse in that moment. Right. So that is definitely one tool. If you've had chronic pain and you do have um, a specific injury, right, you're, you currently have sciatica and there people can see on an MRI that there's a physical reason that's happening. I would say in those cases, I don't push anyone over a three. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to play with positioning, different exercises until you find movements that strengthen you without hurting that. And there's just so many types of ways to move the body that that is endless. If you haven't found that yet, I'm convinced there's a move for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. I I had a a physical therapist, uh, help me. He was the one that was helping me with my hamstring. And I, and I think I didn't really uh, appreciate what he was trying to do for me until really until I started researching for our show today. Um, so he said, Paul, it's just a hamstring. You know, every time you come in here, you say, yeah, it's, it's my injured leg. It's my injured hamstring. And it bothers me whenever I do my leg swing and whenever I do something explosive. And you're always talking about as your, your injured hamstring, it's just a hamstring. I want you to think of it going forward as it's just your hamstring. And I think that's sort of what he was trying to help me get through is, um, sort of hacking into that part of the brain where you're just saying, oh yeah, I, that's just a hamstring. It's, it's, it's operational, you know, it's, it's, it's not giving you that negative feedback every time you're trying to, to use it. No, I, I think that that is a really good tool. And actually, I was thinking about that today because in, in some podcasts for the book that I've taped, I've been asked about like my own chronic illness and I, or, or cr- uh, chronic pain or I have autoimmune issues. And I'm always a little hesitant to talk about that because I don't want to be like, well, I don't want to I don't want to be my illness. I don't want to be an autoimmune disease, you know? So it is like how you think about that. Because if, if you let yourself go there, you can kind of spiral into something. This is my injured self. This is my sick self, you know? No, I, I, that's, that's a really good point too, is you can, you can use that tool beyond just, you know, the acute or chronic pain. You can, you can apply it to lots of different things. Like we said, anxiety or, or sickness or anything. That's, that's a good point. Right. Your pain, your illness, none of that defines you unless you allow it to. You are more than that. You have more to offer than that. Right. And that's why it's worth finding and exploring all sorts of tools. Um, and, and I'm open to exploring anything. I say be cautious if something's going to be really expensive and it see, if it seems like snake oil. Right. <laughs> Watch out for that. But otherwise, be open to all sorts of things. Right. Acupuncture 
they haven't proved that it works, they also can't seem to disprove it, right? Uh, I've had great success with with a chiropractor, but I was very nervous about going to a chiropractor. I thought I'll go in and they're going to crack my neck and I'll be dead. <laughs> yeah, was, me too. It wasn't at all like that. I went in. I said, I'm really, I really don't want you to do my neck. That doesn't make me comfortable. They respected that. They worked other things. I have found it a really helpful option. Um, so get good recommendations from people you trust, but know that if one thing didn't work, there's another, there's another option on the table. Uh, I think that that's an awesome point is getting good recommendations from people you trust. That's, that's one of the things we try to do on the show is, is give people tactics that, you know, either I've tried or my guest and I have both tried, or even just my guests have tried where it's something that's tried and true, at least for an N equals one experiment and to give them ideas. And that's the whole theme of what I try to teach as a coach is being open-minded to new ideas and giving them a try. Um, if it didn't work, then at least you have that in your arsenal of something that you know didn't work for you. You can sort of scratch that off the list. It's that That's just as powerful almost as finding something that does work. Yes, it's never wasted. You've yes. learned something from that. You get a good story. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Well, I've had you for a long time, but before you go, I don't want to have a certified Pilates instructor, especially as one as good as yourself, but without talking a little bit about sort of the skill set and some of the principles of Pilates. What are some of the key things that you can share with my audience? I mean, we talked a little bit about lateral breathing or interabdominal pressure, which I just, I stole that from my friend, Anna, who was on the show and I've been using it when I go running and when I do squats and deadlifts. And I, I'm pretty sure that is a principle that sort of been uh, stolen from Pilates, if you will, and apply, which I love that sort of cross-pollination between different fitness disciplines. Are there other things uh, that you think that come out of Pilates that we should know about and apply if, if we're not doing Pilates itself, which is obviously something that people should explore too? Yeah. So the thing that I love about Pilates is I think it teaches you how to move with good form and safe form so that whatever it is you want to do, if you're a golfer or a runner, if you just like to get up and down off the floor, like you mentioned, to play with your kids, you will do it in a better, safer way that decreases your chance of injury. And part of that is part of the way you breathe, but part of that is also understanding the core, which a lot of people hear core and they think abs. And the core is really your whole trunk. It's your abs, your pelvic floor, your glutes, your back, your shoulder girdle, all working together to stabilize your trunk and joints in space. And we do that in Pilates by bringing special attention to your stabilizer muscles. So most people care about the muscles they can see, like your superficial muscles, the six pack, the delts, the lats, the quads. And those are great muscles. They're important. We work them in Pilates. You can't move and not work them for mm -hmm. the most part, right? Any big move is going to use those muscles. But in Pilates, we really fine tune using the superficial muscles, the little small muscles that make subtle adjustments that most people have never heard of and don't care about. But if you can make adjustments, suddenly you can work your bigger muscles safer, but also more intensely and in a way that puts less pressure on the joints because it's your stabilizer muscles that help keep the joints in neutral for any movement you're doing. So your big muscles can propel you forward, but those little stabilizer muscles are there for the long game. If you want to be up and walking when you're 90, if you want to play with your um, 
uh, Frisbee team for a long time and run, you need to be aware of and understand how to utilize your stabilizer muscles. And that's what Pilates is all about. Yeah. So I think, you know, I was trying to sneak in a couple of quick hacks here, but I think really, honestly, if you want to learn some of the methods and skills of Pilates, you really should go to a class or a few classes and really understand because body awareness isn't something you just, you could have the best cueing in the world, but you're not going to just have it overnight. I've had a few clients that have surprised me with that, but most of the time it takes some practice and, 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 and work and understanding to, to really get it. Yeah. I mean, I've been teaching Pilates since 2005. I I feel Mm. like I study it. I'm a student of Pilates and I'm still learning it. And I will like a point will dawn on me and I'll be like, oh, how could I have not known this? But it's because I had to go through this process of getting through other things and learning something else before I got there. Or our bodies are always changing. And that's another benefit for pain, right? Like the reason I cued in on something else or that a new piece of Pilates relates to me is because my body is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. That's a promise for pain. The fact that you are in pain today is not a guarantee that you are in pain tomorrow. The fact that you have been in pain for 20 years does not guarantee that you are in pain tomorrow. So I think we have to realize that we are always in flux and that always opens up opportunity for movement and change. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, if you, if you have a successful rehabilitation from an injury, which I'm sure pretty much everybody can appreciate that there's always, whether or not you pay attention to it is, is the question, but there's always great things to, to learn from it. I, that's really where I've, I had six months pretty much this year where I wasn't running, but I, uh, went down this sort of mobility journey this year and, you know, it's, this is huge component of the fitness discipline that I wasn't properly doing myself or teaching. And I've been, (laughs) I've been a certified trainer for over 20 years. So that, that, that was pretty embarrassing, but I just looked at it as this tremendous opportunity to add to my own, um, you know, programs as well as, as my clients. So I love that you said that just use it as a tool. I feel like every injury I've had has made me a better instructor, um, made me understand what my clients are going through more and has in the end made me stronger. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm noticing just in my example with my knee are, you know, if I'm doing a, a squat or a lunge or my, are my knees valgus as I'm doing it? Am I, you know, am I pushing my f- feet evenly through the floor? Am I rotating? You know, all these mobility movements, um, got sort of highlighted or enlightened, I guess. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's nice, right? Like, yes, because there's always more to learn. I once had a, um, Again, one of the elders had said to me, because I think I said, like, I have days where I'm like, I'm nailing this. I'm doing such good work for people. And then I have days where I'm like, am I helping anybody? Do I know what I'm talking about? What is going on? And she said to me, when you stop having those days, get out of the field. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. You always want to sort of be motivated to push yourself and learn new stuff. Yep. Cause those are the days that I do go and go, God, I don't feel like I helped anybody today. <laughs> Why? And that doesn't mean that I didn't help people. Right. I just felt like I didn't get someone to where I was hoping they'd get, or, you know, something was still aggravated in them and I'll go out. And that's, that's always what spurs me on to do more research. The days, everything I'm like, I nailed this. I'm the best Pilates instructor in the world. <laughs> I don't go and do more research that night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> 
quick sort of technical Pilates question. When you're teaching your class how to do sort of the lateral breathing exercise, but also doing a skill at the same time, like I, I'm not sure of the, the proper name for it, but I know one of the uh, disciplines is to put a ball between your knees and do like a bridge, but you're also at the same time keeping your, your 360 degree pressure through your trunk and breathing at the same time. Like, is there a, do you have a good little hack or, or cue to help people maintain flexion, but still keep breathing? That's something I struggle with. Uh, so I think a couple of them, um, and, and one, I, I think most people struggle with this. I think breathing is very hard. Trying to do controlled breathing is very hard. If we add movement or thinking about coordination, it's doubly hard, right? So <laughs> yeah. I, I try to tell people that because the second you get tense or stress or feel like I must breathe, like, so I try to be like, uh, the, what is it? Instead of, um, practice makes perfect. I lately like practice makes progress. Hmm. So it does not have to be perfect today. Chill out, like try to breathe. But the cues that I find very helpful are to envision your rib cage op- side, sideways laterally opening out like an accordion and then closing or opening your rib cage opens out like an umbrella opening and then closing back down around the spine. So I find those visuals really helpful. And the other thing is, is I think people actually get confused and there's been articles about how Pilates is bad because they have you like suck your gut in all day long. And that is not what we're doing. When people engage the lower abs to encourage the breath to happen laterally, it should never feel like an aggressive bearing down, pulling your stomach in as tightly as you can. It should be subtle engagement lower in the abdominals from pubic bone to belly button. And the cue I give is that you are zipping a pair of skinny jeans fresh out of the dryer after eating Thanksgiving dinner. I'm standing up while I'm talking to you, Maggie. I'm, I'm thinking about my skinny jeans right now. I'm trying to put them on. <laughs> I've got a pair or two. Okay. <laughs> so it's lower in the abs. And that can be really hard to find if you've ever had an abdominal surgery or if you've had a C-section. If... You can do a Kegel on command. Your lower abdominals will engage automatically. So if you do a Kegel, you will feel your lower abdominals engage. It feels so subtle, like the skin just tightening slightly, getting taut. Mm -hmm. That is how much you should be pulling in those lower abs. It's gentle. It's subtle. Do the glutes activate at the same time? Because I'm practicing right now, but my glutes are firing too. Is that, am I doing it wrong? Uh, your glutes should not fire, but that's super common. Okay. Okay. So I've got work to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's part of the fun, right? Yes. So an, a place that I find it's helpful to practice that is get in a mirror because sometimes you can't tell if you're moving. So make sure you could see yourself in a mirror. Get on all fours like you're about to do a cat stretch, the one where you arch the back and then round up like a Halloween cat. Yeah. Yeah. Have a neutral spine. Let your stomach release like gravity's taking over. Let it go away. We don't always do, right? Because we're embarrassed to ever let our stomach totally inflate. And try to just gently engage your ab muscles and let them go without moving any bones. Because mm. when we zip those jeans or engage the abs, it should not 
move our pelvis. We shouldn't tuck the tailbone between the legs. We should be able to do that in a neutral spine and pelvis. Okay. Um, I like that. I'm going to practice that. Another good cue I find for people is imagine, like if you're lying on your stomach, imagine I just stuck an ice cube under your belly button. What would you do? Let's see. Oh, I would shift left or right, wouldn't I? Right. So like if you're trying to get off the ice cube, but... Um, <laughs> That would, be, Literally. that would be actually the smartest <laughs> thing to do. So I think it might make more sense if you're actually lying down. Next time you're lying down and assume you can't get up, right? And just like if someone ever like put an ice cube under the back of your shirt on a hot summer day, imagine if they just stuck it under your lower abs at that moment. And you'll see in a group class, people suddenly do the right thing. They just zip the jeans. Okay. I've heard um, Kelly Surrett does he calls it a brace neutral spine which i think is somewhat what you're talking about and he says it's a belly whack test so it's like a 30 percent flexion and he's he says if somebody was to come up to you if you were maintaining that brace neutral spine and somebody was to come up to you and hit you in the stomach would they you know run into anything or or not but i'm still when i practice that i'm still flexing my core so i don't think it's quite the exact same thing but yeah so we're our abdominal engagement there, it would be more subtle than that description. Okay. And we'd want to stay, we'd want, not that you can't move into flexion, right? Like you could rock to what we call imprint, pressing the low back into the mat, or you could curl your upper body up, or you could lift up into a shoulder bridge, like you were describing where your hips come off the floor. But you should be able to do that shoulder bridge and stay neutral. You shouldn't have to tuck your tailbone and you should be able to keep that gentle engagement of the abs. And actually, I have a couple YouTube videos where I talk about and show this. Uh, I can send them to you for the show notes. Yes, let's do that. That's cool. I, I think that there's definitely other folks out there like myself that would get value out of, of practicing those. Those sound really awesome. Yeah, because it, it doesn't come intuitively. Before we let you go, two two more things. Can you, we'll put these all in the show notes and blog, but can you tell everybody where we can learn more about you and find your book and everything about your business? Sure. Um, well, my book is probably easiest to find on Amazon. Um, Dick Van Dyke has a book with the same name, Keep Moving. So make sure you get Maggie Downey's or, or get us both. Get right? both, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and otherwise, my website personaleuphoria.com and euphoria is E-U-P-H-O-R-I-A. That has access to my blog. If anyone wanted to email me, they can find it there. Uh, if you're local to Connecticut, that's where you can find all our classes and things like that. And it could link you to my YouTube channel or all my social media. Because on, on YouTube, I have a number of videos for different things. Foot pain, flash plantar fasciitis issues, low back pain. So you can search my YouTube channel and find helpful videos. Um, and also I have a website, peepsinmotion.com, P-E-E-P-S in motion. And there we have um, broken down a happy foot workshop, a happy hips and low back workshop, a happy neck and shoulders workshop, um, that takes you through even more exercises that are in the book and can be a good resource for very specific areas of pain. Yeah. That sounds like that'd be a nice one, two combo because you know, you've got the book, which you can start to learn the tools and then you've got that practical application with, with the videos. That's, that sounds excellent. Yeah. That, that again, that is just the, the method, uh, peeps in motion I have with my partner, Kate Ballone, and it is 
what works for you. Do videos work? Do books work? Do occasional blogs work? Getting a tidbit here and there. How, what tool helps you? Yeah, absolutely. And I always ask every guest on the show about wellness balance. It's sort of my personal philosophy that, uh, you know, not something that we can ever really find. Um, but we're always, even on a daily basis, uh, getting to wellness balance is, is kind of the impossible dream, but we're always getting new strategies, getting new ideas. So I always like to get new ideas from my guests on how they find their wellness balance. So it could be, you know, things for physical, emotional, spiritual, anything, uh, that helps you find your balance. I think to your point, I'm still working on my balance. A little bit. <laughs> um, I, it, Mark Twain, because I'm obviously a fan of his, has a great quote that is, uh, you can't reach old age by another man's road. My habits protect my life, but they would assassinate you. Oh, I like uh, that. That's nice. I love that. Yeah. And um, it, it seems funny with a book like Keep Moving, but I think that's why the title came. I have to move. If I don't move, I get antsy. I get crabby. I, I can't focus as well. Uh, if I am stressed, move, t- stopping and taking a walk almost always helps, even though I can be resistant to that because I think I have too much to do. Mm-hmm. If I am down in the dumps, movement almost always helps me feel better. You know, I, I feel very lucky that I enjoy movement so much and that it's such a tool for me to stay calm. Um, I think I probably need to learn on the balance of that to find stillness in my life more and accept that, um, and understand that that can be good too. But I really struggle with that side of things. I, that's really great advice. Really good advice. I think some key takeaways from today are to move a little bit more. Um, absolutely. And if you're not already rethinking the way you think about pain, I think we've hopefully given people some ideas on maybe it's not exactly how, how we thought about it. And maybe go try a Pilates class or two and, and learn some some new tricks there. Um, anything else before we go, Maggie, that you want to share with everybody? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot. I think just keep looking for answers. If something hasn't worked for you, know that there is something else. That, that's what the research shows. There's so We haven't even gotten to the tip of the iceberg yet. There is so much promising research coming our way. And, and to go back to the virtual reality, that we, we might be able to heal ourselves with this technology and with games, right? Yes. How awesome would that be? Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's an exciting time uh, to, to live in and, and understand you know, how powerful we, we are as, as creatures. It's pretty neat. Yeah. And, and I would say too, if you have a practitioner tell you this is a permanent state, get a second opinion. Yes. Something is wrong with that practitioner. Yeah. You alluded to this earlier, but I think it's so important to go to a trusted advisor who's been recommended, like somebody who's gone and it may, you may not have success with that person, but that's a good start. Like is your primary care physician listening to you talk about what's going on or are you being fed information for 15 minutes and getting kicked out? I was so surprised. Um, this was when I still lived in the U S I guess it was probably about three years ago. Um, I had been on a plant-based diet for a little while and I sort of expected my doctor to just say, yeah, well that works for some people and not for others, whatever. But he actually listened and asked questions and waited for me to get everything out that I wanted to get out. And then we started to talk about strategies and plans and, 
even just to have a doctor talk about nutrition was was sensational. So I, I, they're out there. There was really, really good physicians out there, but listening for good recommendations for that. And, and, and you have a good point, not being scared to, to try somebody else. It's a good point. Because, because research shows that if you trust your practitioner and they have a conversation with you, if practitioners ask their patients or clients, what do you think caused your pain? Why do you think you're in pain? They get better results. Yeah. And, and if they're not just saying, uh, exercise more and eat less and, you know, they may not necessarily have, uh, applied that in their own lifestyle. That, that makes it a little bit, um, <laughs> that makes it tough to believe as well. No, it's true. Right. You, you want to feel like someone understands you, that you're listened to, that they get it, that you're not just a check in the box getting moved along, you know? Yeah. So true. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope everything goes great for your book. I'm really excited to read the whole thing. I hope other people are inspired to learn more about their bodies and, and how pain works and, and to try new tactics. Thank you so much. I really appreciated having the time to have this conversation with you across like continents. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's really cool. Technology today makes it so great to, to be able to chat with people from all over the world. That's one of my favorite things about this job. It's, it's really fun. Get to learn all yeah. kinds of new stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing information to people. I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's fun for me. It's my pleasure. And I, I just, um, I just put together, I started this about a, a year ago, almost exactly. And, um, one of the things I did, um, for my last show of the year was sort of collate all of the things that I learned or shared throughout the year. And that's, that's probably been the most rewarding thing for me is all these new cool little tricks and tactics and studies and things I've come across just interviewing folks through last year and researching things for shows. It's been really fun. I look forward to hopefully another year of learning new things in 2019. That's the best thing about any year, right? Yes. Well, Maggie, I, it's probably past your bedtime over there uh, in Connecticut. So I'll let you go. Thank you again so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. Also, thank you to Maggie Downey for joining me. A few things you can do to help out Boost Health if you'd be so kind. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast in your podcast app. Leave a review on the Boost Health Facebook page and subscribe to the Boost Health TV YouTube channel. And follow My Boost Health on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also visit the Boost Health website at myboosthealth.com for links to everything along with more motivation and information. Until next time, this is Paul Sandberg for Maggie Downey saying goodbye and find your balance.